Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The How's Your Father podcast with Johnny Cochran. And now, here's Johnny. Hello and welcome to another episode of the How's Your Father podcast. Uh, my name is Johnny Cochran and as you probably know by now, uh, every episode is dedicated to exploring the different different aspects around fatherhood. Every week I always have a guest to join me on the podcast and this week I am joined by actor, screenwriter, comedian and all-around spectacular human being, Dave Fulton. Hello, Dave Fulton. Wow, Johnny, I don't know who you just described, but I really want to be that guy. <laughs> um, we have to do our own rounds of applause here as well, so yay! yay. It's just to boost morale. Um, Dave, honestly, now, when I um, thought about doing this podcast in general, you were one of the first people I thought about as... Obviously, um, both being comedians, we've come across each other on a number of occasions, and we always talk about your unique situation when it comes to um, fatherhood. So I thought it was a a fantastic example um, to be able to discuss around. And uh, yeah, really excited about having you on the podcast. But first of all, um, to kind of dip into it, can I ask you a, a broader question? Did you always expect you would be a father or was it something for a while that you never expected to be getting involved with uh no i i had no no expectations um i mean before you become a father you got to make sure you get the right mother and as you get older you start looking at women differently um the uh, earlier it was always kind of yeah i want to knock boot with that and <laughs> And then you get older and you start meeting women and you go, that was fun. She's a freak. Um, but I don't want her to be the mother of my children. And um, so, yeah, you, um, uh, so you start kind of gearing your, your sights in another direction. And um, so, and not that I was like, I want to be a dad one day, but you kind of look at it as like, you know, A, do I want to spend a lot of time with this woman? And B, if it comes to it, you know, could she be a good mother? But, um, and as I got older, as any comedian does, all comedians are procrastinators. We always think as soon as we get this goal out of the way, then we're going to do this. As soon as I get my own TV show, as soon as I got my own film deal, as soon as I become a big star, then I'll be a family man. Then I'll get married. Then I'll settle down. And, um, 
Yeah, and like they say, life is something that happens when you're at least likely to expect it, and that's kind of what happened to me. Um, let's move on to how you have became uh, become a father. So initially, you weren't necessarily expecting it. It was more about finding the right partner, as you say. But at some point, um, you decided fatherhood was where you wanted to go. And can you let us know uh, your situation and how that came to pass? Well, my my wife, I met my wife up in Edinburgh in, in um, 99. And, um, and it became pretty apparent, you know, not too before the end of the year that, yeah, this one was far and above anything I've been involved with in the past. And um, she... Uh, yeah, so you know, we we moved in together in two thousand, and you know, we planned on the marriage, and then the the discussion of the kids comes up, which has to, and it was always she's she goes, I want one. I'm like, yeah, good, great, one, you know, and um, and you just keep, you know, you you're not trying to try, you know, you're trying to not try kind of thing, and you know, and and then there comes a point where you're like, wow, you know, we've been at this for a while, and nothing's really happened, and then. You start going through the motions of. Um, she went to a fraternity, uh, fertility uh, festival, and um, yeah, where they sell you know, eggs out of, of, of food trucks and and stuff like that. And so we started looking at, okay, wow, are we fertile at all? And so we started doing those, and you know, they were poking and prodding her, and I had to jack off into a few cups. And um, <laughs> that was, they asked you to do that, yeah, that wasn't just part yeah, of the time. <laughs> yeah, it turns out you have to do it there. They don't want you to bring it from home. <laughs> okay and um so yeah we you know we we tried it and it was um one of those things to where the reality of time kicks in and it's uh guess what you have probably left this a little bit late and and one of the things the doctor told me in the office one of those real come to jesus moments she said um most of your sperm is dead dave uh 70 of your sperm is dead but the volume makes up for it. So you're still a viable father candidate. And I don't forget about that. It was like, so most of the sperm is dead, but the volume makes up for it. <laughs> and the joke I could do on stage was like, can I get that on a t-shirt or something? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we kept trying. We tried to, you know, moving toward the IVF thing and that wasn't going to work. And then we tried embryonic adoption, um, which is funded by the Catholic Church and the Spanish government. So we flew to Madrid, and they found the Spanish equivalent of the two of us, only younger. And they made those eggs fertile, and they take a turkey baster, or it looks like a turkey baster, and I held my wife's hand in a very clinical situation. And, yeah, and those were put up in the, uh, the baby shoot. And, um, and then <clears throat> they kind of took, uh, but then they didn't. And she had an ectopic pregnancy and emergency surgery. Um on a Saturday and that was rough that was rough and um and you know the bedside manner of the NHS one of the doctors said um yeah it's too bad because we can hear a heartbeat anyway let's get them out of there so um yeah what do you do um but you know with Brexit maybe it's just as well we don't have a Spanish kid you know so <laughs> so so then the wife brought up, um, I still want a family, let's adopt. And I was kind of like, wow, okay, hadn't even entered my mind. And then you have to run through all, jump through a lot of hoops. I mean, a lot of hoops. And you had to get cleared up by people. And I had the FBI do a background check on me. So had you ever considered adoption like early days? Like, obviously, there's loads going on here. You seem to have explored every avenue. 
But um, at that point, was like adoption even on the table in your minds or was it something that you kind of were exploring one thing at a time as it was coming up? Wasn't even, wasn't even in the wheelhouse. Yeah. Wasn't even on the radar. So, um, she was the big driving force behind this. And, um, and I kind of, you know, like anything, you're so self-absorbed and what you mistaken as a career you keep nodding your head. And, um, and then uh, eventually we go get checked out and, and get cleared and you have to do this four day, you know, I can't remember the name of the course was called, but I used to call it, so you want to adopt and run by these four women uh, who hated me. Um, yeah, they hated me, it turns out. What you needed at that point, Dave, was a t-shirt saying, I make up for it in volume to uh, calm their nerves. Yeah, that would have, that would have made peace with them, I'm sure. It was crazy because it, it was three women. There was like a um, uh, mixed race Asian gal, or a couple of those, and another white gal, and a, a white gal from the eastern part of the United States. And um, and she really hated me because as comedians, our job is to, is to question everything. So anytime they brought anything up, I was like asking, you going, why? Why is that? Why, why, why do we have to do that? Or, you know, or why would you bring that up? And and they had all these like firsthand accounts of people and they were pretty much mostly women, just this parade of women coming in and talking about their adoption experience. Um, we had one lesbian couple and they were, they were good, but you know, as a man, you kind of want the, I know, oh, you're misogynistic. You know what? Fuck you. <laughs> you know, I just want a guy to pull me aside and go, dude, hang in there. You'll be fine. But none of that, you know, we had one middle-class couple, a, a middle-aged, you know, like, I don't know, mid thirties guy who they adopted a little girl and oh my god it happened so fast so we went out to the alps and went skiing for two weeks like you do that's their exact words by the way <laughs> so there was no the most real kind of examples and discussion we got were from um uh two separate african women who talked about it, it was really hard one african woman she was so funny she goes she said so we get the child and my husband and i were in the park and it's crying and I looked at him and I says, let's just leave it here. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I'm sure they're wonderful parents. So um, yeah, we passed that. And then, then it's like speed dating. And then you start looking at all these kids and, and you have to make up your mind straight away what you want, because they'll do a bait and switch. They will, you know, if you're like, look, I want, you know, this and they'll go, okay, great. But we got that. You want that? And you're like, no. And everybody wants white girls. They can't keep white girls on the shelf. Um, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed girls. Oh my God. Under the age of two, they, they're gone. And, um, so, and then so it works, it's, it, it works its way down kind of the spectrum until you get to the least desirable, hardest ones to place, which are black male, um, uh, children. So, so when we, when we're talking about that whole kind of adoption process and, um, almost picking your children, um, did you find that um, the process in that respect was a bit kind of reductive and a little bit, um, I don't know, I don't know how best to put it, kind of, you would expect that the relationship formed between parents and children would be one that is, you know, um, it's going to be all encompassing love no matter what, you know, you are going to love them either way, despite walks and all, you know? So oh, yeah. Yeah. being able to pick your child, is that kind of a little bit counterintuitive for that? It, um, it's a bit, it's a bit, but it's the reality of the situation. I mean, some people go into the adoption, you know, game and they specifically want 
you know, a kid with, you know, Down syndrome. I mean, I've met a couple of those and you're like, wow, you know, um, some people go in because they're like, well, we got one kid, couldn't have a second one. So we're going to just, you know, top it off. And so, so yeah, I mean, we wanted, we wanted a male, you know, child under the age of two healthy. That's it. And you would get, you would see, oh, look at this kid. You little and you click on, you get more details. And then you find out that the, you know, the little boy's father is the mother's grandfather because she was raped by the guy when he was drunk. And you find out the worst, you see the underside, the worst underside of, of humanity when you start looking at these, these kids and these people. And, and you see these circumstances where the, some of these children should have been taken in care immediately, but were left to kind of endure and, and try to live through horrible circumstances because the people in charge of all this were kept trying to give the birth parents another chance to kind of get their get their act together to be good parents. And in the end, you know, when they when it finally gets to that tipping point where like, look, you can't, you're not a good parent, a lot of the damage has been done to this child already. And it's, you know, fortunately a bunch of it is reversible. But um yeah, but you already have your work cut out for you. We were lucky, you know, because our child was taken at birth, so he never really knew his birth parents. So so um we kind of got to that point there um, earlier in the story when you were saying that at, at, at the um, final point you decided to adopt a uh, black boy. Um, that was so by, tr- by the way, by the way, that was not our first choice. I mean, I, I got to be honest about all this kind of stuff. And um, our first choice was a British Iranian mixed gal, a guy, a little boy, twelve months old. And we were, you know, we were at the top of the hit parade for, you know, becoming that kid's parents. And then they said, yeah, we'll let you know in, a, in about a week. And then four weeks later, my wife called up and went, hey, uh, what's happening with this child? And they said, oh, I'm sorry. We gave it to another couple two weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. And wow. you're like, wow. Right. And so then we went on to the second one, who was a mixed race child, had the coolest hair ever. And he, he was born with severe um, addiction to opiates because his mother felt that heroin was a good way to get through pregnancy. And um, so it took three, his first three months was um, trying not to be a junkie and then going on from there. And so we, and you interviewed for all this stuff and the guy in charge of that interview hated me. Uh, Passive aggressive, middle-class, home county piece of work, bitch this was. And, um, and she not only, you know, refused us, this, this little boy, but actually put in the email that our social worker forwarded to us that she doubted whether or not our marriage would survive the adoption process because I was so selfish. So, oh, wow. And so then, then at that point, my wife and I, we had a little come to Jesus of our own. She's like, if you don't want to do this, then let's call it quits. And I thought to myself, wow, what am I afraid of here? You know, like any, any parent's going to be afraid, but I'm like, what am I afraid of? We've been going through this process for three years now. And um, I climb frozen waterfalls for fun. And I ride motorcycles too fast. And I do some some scary things that a lot of people, especially comedians, would never think of doing. And I just thought to myself, why not? You know, I can't imagine my life without this woman. Why not, why not make this the next big adventure? So I'm like, I'm in. I'm all in. Which I, I realized I wasn't fully in before. So I was all in and started shopping for kids. And um, I found this one little boy who was afraid of the Hoover. And I'm like, let's get him. And she's like, no, he's afraid of the Hoover. And I'm like, that's a discipline thing. This is going to work out great. She said, no, no, can't have that kid. She wanted personality. So she found this little boy who had, you know, buckets of personality. And, um, and, he, was, and he was black. 
and um, <clears throat> London born, healthy and um, taken into care right at birth. And so we were interviewed by this woman named Jackie, who was fantastic, almost, you know, from my white cracker point of view of coming from North Idaho, raised around rednecks and racists, she was uh, she was like militant, like Black Panther kind of, you know, but and she put it to us and said, you know, you know, uh, interviewed us for like three hours in our house. And in the end, she left. She said, I came here to tell you there's no way that a white couple is going to you know, adopt this little boy because he's special. But after getting to know you and answering the questions I've, I've put to you, I'm going to recommend that you would be very good parents. And um, wow. but you're going to but you're going to have to fight for him. And she gave us a big hug and walked out the door. And then, um, yeah, little little did we know she was pretty. That's a pretty altruistic statement. So in terms of there was the first kind of little bit of pushback within the process about the transracial adoption, which you subsequently um, went to go through the whole process of. Um, what other barriers do you, did you find as a white couple um, adopting or tr- at that point attempting to adopt a black child? What, what kind of pushback were you getting from the people around you and uh even your support network none none we got i mean the people in social services um quite honestly they were excited to you know get rid of a black male child which is the hardest ones to place and the only pushback i got was my dad was against it and um you know he's old school republican and he you know you do what you want but this is wrong it's going to confuse him going to confuse yourself going to be a hard life and um so yeah and then so we moved forward on it and we had all the checkouts and stuff and they were they held back some information about his medical history, which kind of put me off a bit. But um, but in the end, the um, yeah, he uh, it went forward and then and then and then they threw a big, big fucking wrench in the works for us. So we're talking about something that obviously had happened a while ago and now you're in a completely different space being that you've now adopted your son, obviously love your son and are completely woven into each other's lives for the rest of, you know, the rest of your lives. When you look back on this period where you weren't connected and um, it wasn't, you know, you hadn't chosen him, like, does that feel like a a real different, different mentality in your life, like kind of moment before your son was you know, your world. I, I guess the best way to describe how, you know, to anybody listening who wants to listen is he was, um, he was all scheduled to move in with us. There's a nine day uh, introduction period uh, that they laid out. And some academic felt that nine days was enough for, I mean, you send him pictures and recordings and stuff, and then he meets you. And for nine days you hang out and then he moves in. And um so we were all ready for that. We had the room ready. We, as self-employed individuals, my wife being an actress and, and um, self, you know, other business things going, we had everything ready. We were all ready to go. It was like August 2014. And then 48 hours before we're supposed to meet him, they delayed it by a month. And, you know, well, we have to do some more tests. And we're like, what? Because if you have a real job, you have a straight job, the government and your business will help you survive financially until you know the introduction period and is all done. Uh, if you're self-employed, you get no money, you get no assistance, you get nothing. So we saved up the money, I canceled a lot of work, and now suddenly I had a month free. And um, so I was scrambling. I managed to do a, a, a pilot for a sitcom called I Live With Models that was on Comedy Central. And uh, they got me because they couldn't afford Rich Hall, that's what I tell people. <laughs> but yeah, so we, we, you know, 
We're, we're delayed by a month. And my wife was shattered. I mean, she, it was kind of like, you're, you're right at the end of the ski jump. And they're like, all right, wait, 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 30 days. And so then we, we've, so all my work's delayed, you know, it's all my work's canceled, it's delayed. So we finally meet him um, beginning of September, 2014, nine day introduction period. The kid's hell on wheels. He moves in and I'm still kind of like, cause you know, I've been all over the world, you know, and I live in London, but there's the Idaho, my upbringing of, you know, being surrounded by white people. And now I've got this little black kid in my house and I'm like, this is cool. You know, my, my wife completely, you know, multicultural family, everything else like that. And I'm looking at him going, and he was into it. I mean, he was fine with me because I'm, you know, he's running around the playground climbing high like I am up the, uh, the slides and whatnot. So, but, so I, I don't really, I didn't know how to be a dad. So I'm facilitating to my wife as best I can. What do you need? I'll go to the store and get this, whatever you need. I'm a, I'm a guy. You know, I'll fix it. What do you, I'll fix it and then we'll be fine. Whatever it is, I'll fix it. Because I build bikes, I fix stuff, I'll fix it. I can build a house, I'll fix this. So after about a week, she was shattered and, you know, losing weight and not sleeping. So Rufus Hound said, hey, why don't you take the kid out? I went, all right, fine. So I load him up in the pram and all the diapers and all the wet wipes and all the other kind of stuff you're not supposed to flush. And we go down to the River Thames and we walk all the way down to the Tennington Locks and we get an ice cream and then take him up to Richmond Park and halfway there, I got to clean his diaper out. And this kid shit his half of his weight into this diaper. <laughs> and I put him on a park bench, you know, by this little pond and, and the ducks are kind of like stirring away and all the middle-class white people with, you know, their dog named Montana, you know, or whatever, are just like they're stirring away from me. And I clean him up. And he did not fess at all. He looked at me like, you got this, man. You told he didn't squirm or move or kick off or cry or nothing. The confidence he had in me for taking care of that for the first time was kind of like, wow, you know. Was that a moment where you felt like this like a, a crystallizing moment where you felt like felt like your father-son relationship was you know, that was the genesis point. Well, let, let, let me put it this way. For me, from there, we pushed in Richmond Park. We're pointing at the, at the deers and stuff. And I tell people, I said, the only way I can put it, as simply as I can put it, is it was as if I discovered the fifth chamber in my heart. And that's where he lives. And so for the next week, I was taking him around. I was peeling, you know, doing this, doing that. And I felt this kind of this paradigm shift in my emotions and my life and I had never been there before it's like you live in this house all your life and one day goes have you seen this room and you're like where the hell did this come from <laughs> and you're like do you like the room I don't know I've never been in this room <laughs> so yeah so after two weeks my wife as it turns out was having you know essentially like a bit of a breakdown and so she she says this isn't working I'm not bonding I don't know what's going on and um yeah, it's like, where were you when Kennedy was shot? And I remember being in the kitchen and I was thinking, wow, I've, I'm kind of liking this kid. I don't know what I'm supposed to say here because she's been the driving force. And now I'm kind of like, now she's having doubts and I don't know yeah. how to deal with this. So she called social services on a Sunday. They showed up on a Monday, these two black ladies, one I'd never seen before, one I met for five minutes. They had no no uh, material with us, no files with us, nothing like that. They talked to us for about an hour piece separately. Um, I don't know what she said. I said, if you, you know, I'm talking, I'm like, I got tears. I'm kind of feeling for this kid, but I don't know how to compartmentalize this. So they left, you know, and he's running around, by the way, he's having a great time. He's running around <laughs> back in the garden and stuff. 
And they said, okay, we'll have a professionals meeting and then we'll get back to you on Thursday and Friday and let you know what our decision is. We're like, okay. So the next day at 10 o'clock in the morning, she gets a voicemail message that says, the foster mother is coming by in an hour to pack them up. It's over. They're taking them back. And I remember I was behind him in the pram down by the river and it was all I could do to keep it together. And so... And my wife is just drained. She's just drained. And she's like holding me. She says, I'm so sorry. I don't know what to do. I'm like, I don't know either. So we called our social service gal up and she shows up while we're packing all this stuff up. And the foster mother shows up and she's crying and she hugs us. She's what's going on? It's like, I'm so sorry. I don't know what's going on. And, um, and the social worker, our social worker said, this is not how it's supposed to happen. It's supposed to have a meeting and do this and offer choices. And I go, well, can you stop this? She says, no, I can't because she's here. So we pack all this stuff up put it into her car, you know, and then I said to our social worker, I said, is he going to be all right? She goes, you'll never know. You'll never know what's going to happen to him. It's, you know, I said, can I see him again? No, you'll never, you can't see him again. They will never give you an update. This is it. And so I walked out to the, uh, the car, the curb, and she was holding onto him on her hip. Um, and I gave him a little kiss on the forehead. I said, be a good person. And I turned around and I walked inside and our social worker said, uh, look, we'll get you some counseling and stuff to help you through this. And I'm like, what do you mean counseling? Well, we have a counselor to help people with adoption. I go, why can't we get that? Why didn't we get that? We didn't ask for it. I'm like, we did, <laughs> you know. Mm. So I said, can you leave us alone? So she left. And then I broke down. Uh, I, I cried like I've, it was the worst. It was the worst moment in my life aside from my parents dying. It was the worst. And so we just kind of shut shut down. And for... Um, about 36 hours, we you know we ate a little better and we slept. And then my wife went, this is wrong. And our social worker said, yeah, they didn't handle it right, but what are you going to do? And my wife goes, this is bullshit. You fucked up. We needed help. You didn't give it to us. We want them back. And she's like, we can't have them back. I'm like, well, we don't accept that. So we started sending out emails and calls to the adoption aspect of this going, what's going on? Why didn't you offer this? And we were ignored for five weeks. And we got our local MP involved, uh, Zach Goldsmith. You can badmouth him all you want, but he was the only one in our area and that stepped up. And he says, "I can't get the little boy back, but I can bring up the, the short, you know, the, the failings of, yeah. of this process." So, which he did as a backbencher. And then, after five weeks, they got a new guy, a new head guy, a guy named Matthew. And I imagine his first day at work was like, "Hey guys, great to be here. You look like a fun team to work with. Thanks for the wacky coffee mug." What are all these emails from this co- from this from this couple? So he got a hold of this and um, and he met with us for like three and a half hours and heard our whole story. And and he was he says I've met with everybody else involved with this. I just wanted to get your side of it. And and at the end of it, he says, "What do you want?" My wife goes, "We want him back." And he says, "What do you want?" And I said, "That or to never have this happen to anybody again because this has been the worst thing we've ever had. It's like a death, only worse, because we know the person is still alive. We can't mm-hmm. visit a grave or anything. So he says, all right, I'll give you my decision in a week. And a week later, we get an email that would CC'd everybody involved, all the, all the big bads and everything else like that. And it essentially said, we should entertain the idea of putting this little boy back with this, fam- this, this couple because they clearly love him and they want to be a family. And me, being, you know, yeah, essentially, you know, fix it, guy. Hey, great. Put a warm jacket on him, knock on the door, and then fuck off. <laughs> but we had to be reevaluated. We had a new social worker attached to him. We had all these kind of just oh, these fucked up, weird, you know, spider grass, all kinds of just Processes. wanky social 
all the girls who were psychologists when I was going to college were just, ah, oh, they were so irritating. Daddy didn't hold me, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, and so then they said, okay, you can meet him again. I'm like, okay, great. They said, we can do it on a Wednesday. And at the time, I was, I, the, the sitcom, I Live With Models, got picked up. I'm like, well, we're filming on Wednesdays at Pinewood Studios. And they're like, okay, we can do Tuesdays. They're like, well, Tuesdays we're at Pinewood Studios doing the tech rehearsal. Can we do it Thursday or Friday? They said, no. And I'm like, why? Well, nobody's available. And I'm like, well, I'm free. I'm pretty sure he's free. Can't you find somebody? <laughs> no, no, sorry. It has to be on a Tuesday or Wednesday. So I told my wife, I said, look, I'm going to quit the sitcom. You know, this is the biggest thing that's happened in my life. You know, granted, it wasn't that great a sitcom, but man, it was an amazing experience. The people involved were great. Everybody was telling me I was I was very good in it. I can only, you know, I'm just regurgitating what people told me. Sure. But I was willing to walk away from the whole thing so I could see this little boy. And um, and so my social worker, our social worker and my wife convinced me not to quit. We keep hammering and hammering and hammering. And eventually he said, okay, so they changed it to a Thursday and we got to see him. So four months after they took him, we got to see him again. And he, he freaked out for a couple minutes, but then, you know, we we're on, we we're in a neutral spot in Peckham and we're playing with these toys and we're, you know, feeding him. He loves, he loves uh, strawberries and bananas. So we're feeding him all that and having a good time. So it went on for 90 minutes. And meanwhile, the social workers are plastered to the walls, watching this whole thing. It went well. Okay, let's do it again. That went well. Visit him at the, at the um, foster mother's house. That went well. Saw him four times, saw eight times in four weeks. And they're like, okay, we'll do a reintroduction phase. I'm like, okay. And they're like, well, you have four weeks. Um, it'll take four weeks instead of nine days. And uh, I said, no, two weeks. All right, three weeks. And it turns out through this whole thing, the reason they all felt that this didn't take the first time, they they put it on my shoulders. They, they said, um, Dave didn't offer support, and that's why this failed the first time. And um, so... I would debate that, but I was willing to take it. I'm like, look, you know what? You can blame me for anything. I don't care. I shot Kennedy. How about that? You know, <laughs> just let's get this little boy back. And the and FBI didn't pick that up when they researched. No, they didn't. Research. They didn't. They didn't. That's how good I am, man. <laughs> yeah. I was on the grassy knoll. So yeah, we did the reintroduction thing for three weeks. And then they told me I wasn't allowed to do comedy for three months. And, um, mm. And they're going to pay me 1,500 pounds a month to cover what I was losing. And I thought, man, you have no idea what I do for a living. <laughs> so we worked out a compromise there. And then um, he moved back in with us, you know, and has been here ever since on the 9th of March, 20, 2015. Amazing. And, uh, yeah. And then he, then he got to know my dad via Skype and stuff. My dad, you know, he had a stroke in 2006. And so in, in 2015... You know, he uh, his right side was kind of shut down, so he got. But he still could get around. He could drive a bit. Um, um, I was gonna, I was gonna pull up on that as well, Dave. I think you might be going into that anyway. But um, the listeners will be able to hear that you are American, uh, and I think you hinted at the fact that you were from kind of rural America as well, where perhaps the um, put it put it this way, Johnny, Johnny. Everybody I went to high school with, almost everybody I went to high school with, voted for Trump. That's right. the place I grew up in, right? <laughs> now, now, I don't think my dad would have voted for Trump. He's a Republican, and he might have gone, nah, I'm a Republican, I always vote Republican. But I know for a fact he would have not liked him. I mean, he didn't like him when he announced him. My dad passed in June 2016, and he didn't really... I said, what do you think of Trump? And he's like, he's a con man, right? So, <clears throat> but my dad, you know, he was in the Navy, he'd been around a bit, and um, he didn't like Obama for a lot of reasons. And, uh, but you know what, when he started getting to know 
my son via Skype and stuff, it was, I mean, man, within a very short amount of time, no matter if I called him or I Skyped him, the, the second question out of his, his, his mouth, sometimes the first question was like, how's the boy? How's the boy? You know, how's he doing? How's the boy? And, and we, we, you know, we jumped through all the hoops and, and that was, a, that's a whole, I think it's like one hour program. Um, but when we flew back to meet my dad in November of 2015, uh, we brought him to, he was in an independent living place. We brought him in, he's sitting in his little lazy boy and, and uh, my son's sitting, standing between my wife and I, and he's just staring at my dad. My dad's like, hey, how you doing, Abraham? Hey, how you doing? How you doing? And he's looking at him. And my wife goes, goes honey, who is that? And, and, my, and my son just stares at my dad and he goes, that's grandpa. <laughs> and my dad just broke down. He just started, the tears started coming. So, oh. um, yeah, it was a really, a really, really great moment. And, um, yeah, right to the end. So I, I remember from previous conversations we've had at gigs and whatnot, you have brought up in the past that because you've gone through this transracial adoption, there are people that used to be in your life, um, friends maybe, who just can't get over their racist attitudes, essentially, and they have made comments to you or potentially oh, yeah. pertaining to your, you know, adoption of your son and that you've basically had to look at and think, I don't think I can have that person in my life anymore. Could you talk any further on that? Yeah, I had one friend of mine. I said, yeah, we've adopted a little boy. And he said, oh, did you hide all the silver? And I went, what? He's, he was laughing, going, oh, did you hide all the... And I'm like, why would you say that? Oh, I'm just kidding. I'm like, yeah, man, but that's that's not cool, <laughs> you know? And... um there was, there was not as many as you think, you know, but yeah, a few people have said some things and I've kind of had to, I haven't said, you know what, you're out of my life. I can't put up with that. You're you know, like this. I just kind of went, all right. And just never, never talked to him ever again. And, um, and some of them have backtracked a bit because they see like, wow, this, you know, this has really worked. And I haven't, I haven't gone full on social media with them. I've kind of bits and pieces, but and they they see that there's definitely a connection here, and and they've um, they've kind of had to it's, you know you got to accept it. So, but the um, yeah, it's it's an it's a weird one. When I took him back to Idaho the first time, <clears throat> Idaho where I grew up in the 70s and early 80s, we had a neo-Nazi Aryan compound about 18 miles north, and and even though they're gone now, there's still a bit of that in the background. And um, and I thought. Wow, am I going to be going downtown and he's going to be riding my shoulders and somebody's going to say something incredibly racist? Am I going to have to step up? I'm going to have to start carrying, you know, again, and uh, in the sense of, you know, packing heat, you know, carrying a gun around to protect my family. But it was the exact opposite because even though there's a lot more people in the area, a lot of them moved there from multicultural societies and it's still really white, but they're not put off by seeing a minority running around. So, you know, for now, it, it's, we're not having a problem with that. And, um, it's, uh, matter of fact, I'm, you know, we've had them out there three times now and, and we get less people staring at us there than we do here. So, but in our neighborhood, everybody just knows us. Yeah. We're the first, it was the, Oh yeah. The, yeah. in that house, there's an American, you know, <laughs> and now it's like they're married, you know, now it's the white couple with the black kid. Now it's just, yeah, we're just part of the, part of the neighborhood. No, nobody even looks at us sideways on it. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. We're looking for a sponsor to help get the How's Your Father podcast to an even bigger audience. Sponsoring the show, as well as a promotional trailer, means that your message and our message will be inserted into some of Acast's biggest podcast titles. Get on board and partner with the How's Your Father podcast. Go to pauldaniels.tv for more information. Are there any aspects of raising a black child or just racially adopting anyway that you there are things that you've had to learn as you go things you didn't know about before um aspects that not only are you learning as a father oh yeah oh yeah well i mean hair and skin right off the bat you know hair and skin and um there are some maintenance rituals that you you've got to learn and you just do it and um and i'm way better at picking his hair than my wife is (laughs) (laughs) but um but yeah and you know the hydromole for his skin to keep that moist and going and um so, yeah, but other than that, no, he's just a little boy. And, and he, um, uh, he knows he's black. He knows we're white. Um, he knows he's adopted. He knows his heritage is African Jamaican. You know, he knows that my heritage is Scotch Irish. He, he knows, you know, that one day he will get an American passport because he's my son. It'll be, it'll be tough and not cheap, but it'll have to be done. And, um, so, um, yeah, it's not, and the thing is, is people ask me, well, have you run into, you know, people, you know, suspicious behavior because you have a black child or this, that, the other. And, you know, it's always that classic thing. If you are, if you are looking for a fight, you're going to find it. And I'm not looking for, I'm not looking for that. And, I mean, granted, he's only seven. I mean, he's as big as a 12-year-old, but he's, um, <laughs> it's, we don't, ha- when we go to the shops, we're not followed around by security or whatever. Um and everything is happening now with Black Lives Matter and uh, the whole thing with the, the snuff film with George Floyd and everything leading up to that and, and everything after that. People have asked me, have you made him aware of what's going on? I'm like, well, right now we have a very happy, go-lucky, energetic seven-year-old boy. And, and it's not my job to ruin that, to pop that bubble. 
and he um, he will be more aware of this. Everybody I've talked to, you know, who are from the black community, have said, you know, it'll it'll happen. So there's no reason to rush that. And any any um, questions regarding you know his heritage and his ethnicity and stuff, you know, I've been told by people who have you know done cross racial adoption, they tend to ask the questions before you get them. So there's no reason to rush that. And um, but. You know what? My wife in 1997, she was part of a theater group down in South Africa, and she did a show for Nelson Mandela. So we have a photograph of Nelson Mandela in the house. Um, I have a degree in music composition. I'm a big jazz fan. So, man, I'm playing Miles and J.J. Johnson and <laughs> and Thelonious Monk and Dizzy, you know, as well as Bill Evans and Paul Desmond and all these guys. So he um, he's down with that. And um, so he... Uh, <clears throat> uh, it's 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 one of those things to where we don't need to start putting those demarcation lines in there where they're not needed and um you know when it, when all when all the questions come up regarding you know slavery and 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 racism and things like that we'll we'll just deal with that as it comes and explain to them you know how that happened i'm more up on america's history and ongoing battle with racism than i am around here and even though it's quite quite a problem here it's not nearly the issue we have in the states you know i mean sure. slave you know slavery was legalized 401 years ago and in, as far as i'm concerned we we still haven't really got past that we haven't had our, our nelson mandela apartheid moment where we've gone you know what you're equal and that's all you can do about it you know because there's still places that believe that believe otherwise and um and should any of that come up you know will i call it out yeah i'll call it out you know, will I resort to violence? No, well, you know, it's just kind of, I've decided a long time ago that if anything comes up and within earshot of my son, I would have to pull that person aside and just go, you have to go, you know? Yeah. And the, yeah. And the great, th and the great thing about our society now is as opposed to, you know, say when I was a teenager is if anything that like that kicks off, man, the video evidence will come down hard. I mean, can you imagine? If I'm walking down some road with my son and some guy pulls up and starts yelling racial epithets at me in a crowded situation, can you imagine how many people would not get on their camera phones and record that? So, um, and I think people are becoming more aware of that, that there is a lot of documentation when it comes up with that. So, um, but yeah, he, um, he is, he's just this great little kid who drives me nuts <laughs> <You know? laughs> which is the classic kind of father-son relationship i think well, uh, I've you, got one of those. you know what's funny is because you know somebody said you know because you guys we're buttonheads all the time and it's like well we got two alpha males in the house and um i tell people he's going through puberty at seven because he's he's starting to get hair on his balls i'm like jesus <laughs> <laughs> you know i'm I, he's seven. I'm 55. And when he takes a piss, it's like he's trying to put out a fire from across the road. <laughs> so um, it is funny, though. Every now and then, he'll be laying down on the couch with the wife watching something. And he'll go, Mommy, my willy hurts. Because, he's, you know, he's sporting wood. And she'll go, go talk to Daddy. And he'll go, and he'll, Daddy hurts. I go, you'll be fine. Just relax. <laughs> Does it happen to you, Daddy? Not as often as it used to. <laughs> <laughs> so so dave in terms of um like the whole adoption process um could you 
talk to us kind of objectively the aspects that you guys found particularly hard and you'd possibly even like to see changed for other couples going through the whole process. And if there's those kinds of positive moments that you weren't expecting since adopting your son where you thought, wow, this is just magic and something that I never thought I'd experience in my life. Yeah, I mean, I get asked this a lot. The um, <clears throat> the the thing I took away from our, our thing was is they go, all right, when, when you get your child you know, you have to have no contact with friends and family or your support group, you know, for three, three months. So the child will bond with you, you know, and that's bullshit <laughs> because your family and your friends are your immediate friends are your support group. And so, you know, we, when we got, got him back, we, um, man, we got to, we, we invite everybody over. This is your auntie. This is your grandmother. This is the neighbor across the street. You know, this is the other neighbor, and they have a cat named Huey, you know. And so, yeah, boom, right in with that. And then the, um, and, then, and because he's adopted, we were allocated 15 hours a week for nursery. So we took that immediately. So he started integrating with other children immediately and, and learning kind of the hierarchy within the nursery itself. And he responded so well. They were... Every nursery he left, the the teachers there would cry because they were leaving because he was leaving, because he was always the first one to help. If there's any kids that had any problems, he went right to them and says, "Are you okay?" Would tell the teacher and say, "That child's crying. That child's doing this. Whatever." I mean, you know, it was kind of like half compassionate, half super grass, and <laughs> and he, um, so yeah, because we integrate him within his neighborhood. It's you know with all our support and all our love, <clears throat> he has, you know, turned into the kid that all the teachers want in their class. Um, academically, you know, I hate reading. I mean, it's just typical stuff. I don't like math. And if you push him too hard, he pushes hard back. Boy, does he push hard. He is not, he is not a lilting flower boy. He, um, and because he's big for his age, I pity any kid that pisses him off, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But yeah, so I would tell anybody, uh, you know, who's, and I've had people come up to me about it, you know, keep your family close because they will be there for you and ask a lot of questions. They'll say like, if you run into difficulties, there is help available. You have to pin them down on that. Go, I want specifically what help is available to me. I want those numbers. I want the people in charge of that. I want to see firsthand accounts of those who've gone through it. So I know that it's reliable. I want names and numbers of adoption support groups in your area so I can talk to the people who have already gone through this so you know we can understand that. And uh, and if anybody says to you, well, raising an adopted child is just like raising a child that came out of your, you know, biologically, you go, <laughs> no, fuck off. No, not even close. Um, but yes, you can you can you can come over and, and your child can play with mine. And <clears throat> so he it's yeah, it's a it's a it's a big it's a big bite to take out of. And if people who had kids naturally had naturally had to go through what we had to go through before we you know finally got to the point where the where the parents of this amazing little boy, if they had to go through that, there'd be nobody on the planet within a generation. There'd be none because it's like you want me to do what? I have to do this and take that and take that course and read this. You mean I just can't have sex and have a kid? No, you know. And, and the backlog of children who need families and need homes is, is 
mind-boggling. And if I had the money and the ways and the means and the space, you know, I would probably entertain, you know, because he had a sibling and that needed to be adopted and we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. And, um, and I would do it if I, had, if I had the wherewithal, if I had the money, I had everything involved. And people can always judge from afar. Well, I would have done this. I would have done that. Shut up. You know, you're at a keyboard, you're making judgments about things you have no, no idea about. But there is just, there's just a big backlog of that. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, and if you want to be, you know, more like hipster woke and it's like, don't look at it as adoption. Look at it as, uh, as um, upcycling. Yeah, that's it. So, um, yeah. And um, my hope for him is my, my regrets are I wish I was younger. I wish I knew him when he was first born. This is all stuff I can't I can't change, and um, so yeah, it's been an amazing experience. It's I tell people it's an amazing inconvenience, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> because I think that's what fatherhood is in general at times, you know. Yeah, because um... oh yeah, because everything you knew that was going to happen, everything you were used to, everything about your life, when that child shows up in in your life, whether it's you know through natural occurrences or adoption. Your life as you know it is over. <laughs> and I mean, it's gone. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, I used to go for a couple of weeks, go climbing. And now I still want to go climbing. I still want to do the things that I do. But, the, um, but, when, and, but when I'm doing them, all I can think about is I, I, I got to check in with them, you know. And God bless FaceTime. Oh, my God. You know. There's been times where he's climbing. I've been climbing, and he's called me on Facetime. <laughs> you know, I've you're halfway snow... up a cliff, going. Oh, oh man, sorry, you're breaking up. <laughs> yeah, a, a year ago, March, I was snowboarding in Idaho, which has you know, I grew up within five ski hills, so snowboarding is not a middle snowboarding skiing is not a middle class thing where I grew up. Everybody did it. Everybody did it. You could go down to the charity shop and get a whole kit for fifty bucks, and you're on the hill. So um, yeah, he called me while I was snowboarding. You know. <laughs> And uh, we've taken them whitewater rafting, and I've taken them camping, and I've taken them. I have friends of mine that have big, little, and and huge boats. We take them on those, and 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 um, yeah. So I just want him to experience as much as possible. And I'm I'm building another motorcycle in my garage, and the joke is we call it the Bam bike. But guess his nickname is Bam, because uh, by the time he's old enough to ride it, I'll have it done. <laughs> <laughs> To be honest, to, I mean, the, the points you were making there, I found really, really interesting and a fascinating perspective. How you were saying that um, the processes you've been through as an adopted couple, um, if you know, all uh, couples that have children through natural means had to do that, there would be a misgeneration. I found that a fascinating point. But Dave, one one of the features that we uh, like to encourage on the podcast is that kind of. Um, sharing of experiences through fatherhood, but also if there are any pointers that you can uh, give other fathers as well. And this comes out in a little feature we have called Get Your Tips Out for the Dads. Um, and it is also accompanied by a little song of mine going, Get your tips out, get your tips out, get your tips out for the dads. Dave Fulton, do you have any tips, any advice? And it doesn't have to be just around... Um, Adoption, it can just be for all of your experiences through fatherhood, but uh, any advice for the dads out there? There's, um, when you're on an airplane and they tell you in, in the event of the loss of cabin pressure, put your face max first on first and then put it on the child. So as a father, 
your number one concern is to make sure that you are going to be competent and in good health mentally and physically to look after this this child so if you sacrifice yourself you know oh i sacrificed myself for the kids well you're actually making yourself weaker for a situation where you need to be as strong as possible so <clears throat> you have to not drink to ex you know, excess you have to work out you have to eat right you have to stay healthy because this little person wants you in their life for way longer than than you're going to be available for so stay good and and also um we don't believe in corporal punishment so you know there's none of that happening around here and um and i find that if you talk to them in 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 slow and even tones even when you want to go will you clean your room up <laughs> you you have to you have to you have to kind of quilt that and um and uh and add to add to their lives um because it's it'll be over in a blink i mean uh i posted this thing on facebook a little quite recently where i have this bicycle it looks like an old schwinn kind of paperboy bike and i had a bike i had a seat mounted between me and the handlebars and he would sit on that seat. It was like an actual little bicycle seat and then hold onto the handlebars when he was small. And now he's big enough. He can ride that bike on his own. And, and you just, when I, first time I saw him get on that bike and ride, ride down the road, I mean, my heart just, just exploded. I was just like, wow, you know, another year he's going to be kicking my ass. <laughs> Dave, it's, been an absolute pleasure to have you on the How to Father podcast. What a wonderful um, guest and so, so insightful. Um, and thank you for sharing your experiences. Uh, before you go, Dave, is there anywhere that um, you can point our listeners if they want to see more from you? Or Oh, yeah. I've, I've got a, um, a coffee, you know, the K-O-F-I thing. Um, oh. I, got, I got a coffee thing. It's called uh, Dave Fulton is Not Right. And um, I've actually made like a couple quid off it. You can see some of that. I'm on YouTube. I got a website, davidfulton.com. If somebody is in the process of adopting or contemplating it, there's a link you can get a hold of me on that. Um, davidfulton.com, www.davidfulton.com. So if you're contemplating adoption and um, and you have any questions about it, um, I'll try to help you out. Yeah, man. Well, thanks, Johnny. I, hopefully, we'll see each other in comedy clubs if that if that business ever starts up again. If it ever comes back, yeah, I'm sure we'll. We'll be hunter-gatherers before we're stand-up comedians again. But, Dave, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And, uh, yeah, we hope you guys enjoyed it. Produced by Paul Daniels at pauldaniels.tv Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.